Section 37 of Volume 1C of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Shertuti. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1C, Section 37, Chapter 34, Part 2. One of the chief objections urged by Gardiner against the new homilies was that they defined with the most metaphysical precision the doctrines of grace and of justification by faith points he thought which it was superfluous for any man to know exactly and which certainly much exceeded the comprehension of the vulgar a famous martyrologist calls gardiner on account of this opinion an insensible ass and one that had no feeling of god's spirit in the matter of justification the meanest protestant imagined at that time that he had a full comprehension of all those mysterious doctrines and he heartily despised the most learned and knowing person of the ancient religion who acknowledged his ignorance with regard to them it is indeed certain that the reformers were very fortunate in their doctrine of justification and might venture to foretell its success in opposition to all the ceremonies, shows, and superstitions of popery. By exalting Christ and his sufferings, and renouncing all claim to independent merit in ourselves, it was calculated to become popular, and coincided with those principles of panegyric and of self-abasement which generally have place in religion. Tonstall, Bishop of Durham, having as well as Gardiner made some opposition to the new regulations, was dismissed by the council. But no further severity was for the present exercised against him. He was a man of great moderation, and of the most unexceptionable character in the kingdom. The same religious zeal which engaged Somerset to promote the Reformation at home, led him to carry his attention to foreign countries where the interests of the protestants were now exposed to the most imminent danger the roman pontiff with much reluctance and after long delays had at last summoned a general council which was assembled at trent and was employed both in correcting the abuses of the church and in ascertaining her doctrines the emperor who desired to repress the power of the court of rome as well as gain over the protestants promoted the former object of the council the pope who found his own greatness so deeply interested desired rather to employ them in the latter he gave instructions to his legates who presided in the council to protract the debates and to engage the theologians in argument and altercation and dispute concerning the nice points of faith canvassed before them 
a policy so easy to be executed that the legate soon found it rather necessary to interpose in order to appease the animosity of the divines and bring them at last to some decision the more difficult task for the legates was to moderate or divert the zeal of the council for reformation and to repress the ambition of the prelates who desired to exalt the episcopal authority on the ruins of the sovereign pontiff finding this humour become prevalent the legates on pretence that the plague had broken out at trent transferred of a sudden the council to bologna where they hoped it would be more under the direction of his holiness the emperor no less than the pope had learned to make religion subservient to his ambition and policy he was resolved to employ the imputation of heresy as a pretence for subduing the protestant princes and oppressing the liberties of germany but found it necessary to cover his intentions under deep artifice and to prevent the combination of his adversaries he separated the palatine and the elector of brandenburg from the protestant confederacy he took arms against the elector of saxony and the landgrave of hesse by the fortune of war he made the former prisoner he employed treachery and prevarication against the latter and detained him captive by breaking a safe conduct which he had granted him he seemed to have reached the summit of his ambition and the german princes who were astonished with his success were further discouraged by the intelligence which they had received of the death first of henry the eighth then of francis the first their usual resources in every calamity henry the second who succeeded to the crown of france was a prince of vigour and abilities but less hasty in his resolutions than francis and less inflamed with rivalship and animosity against the emperor charles though he sent ambassadors to the princes of the smalcaldic league and promised them protection he was unwilling in the commencement of his reign to hurry into a war with so great a power as that of the emperor and he thought that the alliance of those princes was a sure resource which he could at any time lay hold of he was much governed by the duke of guise and the cardinal of lorraine and he hearkened to their counsel in choosing rather to give immediate assistance to scotland his ancient ally which even before the death of henry the eighth had loudly claimed the protection of the french monarchy the hatred between the two factions the partisans of the ancient and those of the new religion became every day more violent in scotland and the resolution which the cardinal primate had taken to employ the most rigorous punishments against the reformers brought matters to a quick decision there was one wishart a gentleman by birth who employed himself with great zeal in preaching against the ancient superstitions and began to give alarm to the clergy who were justly terrified with the danger of some fatal revolution in religion this man was celebrated for the purity of his morals and for his extensive learning but these praises cannot be much depended on because we know that among the reformers severity of manners supplied the place of many virtues 
and the age in general so ignorant that most of the priests in scotland imagined the new testament to be a composition of luther's and asserted that the old alone was the word of god but however the case may have stood with regard to those estimable qualities ascribed to wishart he was strongly possessed with the desire of innovation and he enjoyed those talents which qualified him for becoming a popular preacher and for seizing the attention and affections of the multitude the magistrates of dundee where he exercised his mission were alarmed with his progress and being unable or unwilling to treat him with rigour they contented themselves with denying him the liberty of preaching and with dismissing him the bounds of their jurisdiction wishart moved with indignation that they had dared to reject him together with the word of god menaced them in imitation of the ancient prophets with some imminent calamity and he withdrew to the west country where he daily increased the number of his proselytes meanwhile a plague broke out in dundee and all men exclaimed that the town had drawn down the vengeance of heaven by banishing the pious preacher and that the pestilence would never cease till they had made him atonement for their offence against him no sooner did wishart hear of this change in their disposition than he returned to them and made them a new tender of his doctrine but lest he should spread the contagion by bringing them together he erected his pulpit on the top of a gate the infected stood within the others without and the preacher failed not in such a situation to take advantage of the immediate terrors of the people and to enforce his evangelical mission the assiduity and success of wishart became an object of attention to cardinal beaton and he resolved by the punishment of so celebrated a preacher to strike a terror into all other innovators he engaged the earl of bothwell to arrest him and to deliver him into his hands contrary to a promise given by bothwell to that unhappy man and being possessed of his prey he conducted him to st andrews where after a trial he condemned him to the flames for heresy. Arran, the governor, was irresolute in his temper, and the cardinal, though he had gained him over to his party, found that he would not concur in the condemnation and execution of Wishart. He determined, therefore, without the assistance of the secular arm, to bring that heretic to punishment and he himself beheld from his window the dismal spectacle wishart suffered with the usual patience but could not forbear remarking the triumph of his insulting enemy he foretold that in a few days he should in the very same place lie as low as now he was exalted aloft in opposition to true piety and religion this prophecy was probably the immediate cause of the event which it foretold the disciples of this martyr enraged at the cruel execution formed a conspiracy against the cardinal and having associated to them norman leslie who was disgusted on account of some private quarrel they conducted their enterprise with great secrecy and success 
early in the morning they entered the cardinal's palace which he had strongly fortified and though they were not above sixteen persons they thrust out a hundred tradesmen and fifty servants whom they seized separately before any suspicion arose of their intentions and having shut the gates they proceeded very deliberately to execute their purpose on the cardinal that prelate had been alarmed with the noise which he heard in the castle and had barricaded the door of his chamber but finding that they had brought fire in order to force their way and having obtained as is believed a promise of life he opened the door and reminding them that he was a priest he conjured them to spare him two of the assassins rushed upon him with drawn swords but a third james melville more calm and more considerate in villainy stopped their career and bade them reflect that this sacrifice was the work and judgment of god and ought to be executed with becoming deliberation and gravity then turning the point of his sword towards beaton he called to him repent thee thou wicked cardinal of all thy sins and iniquities especially of the murder of wishart that instrument of god for the conversion of these lands it is his death which now cries vengeance upon thee we are sent by god to inflict the deserved punishment for here before the almighty i protest that it is neither hatred of thy person nor love of thy riches nor fear of thy power which moves me to seek thy death but only because thou hast been and still remainest an obstinate enemy to christ jesus and his holy gospel having spoken these words without giving beaton time to finish that repentance to which he exhorted him he thrust him through the body and the cardinal fell dead at his feet this murder was executed on the twenty eighth of may fifteen forty six the assassins being reinforced by their friends to the number of a hundred and forty persons prepared themselves for the defence of the castle and sent a messenger to london craving assistance from henry that prince though scotland was comprehended in his peace with france would not forego the opportunity of disturbing the government of a rival kingdom and he promised to take them under his protection it was the peculiar misfortune of scotland that five short reigns had been followed successively by as many long minorities and the execution of justice which the prince was beginning to introduce had been continually interrupted by the cabals factions and animosities of the great but besides these inveterate and ancient evils a new source of disorder had arisen the disputes and contentions of theology which were sufficient to disturb the most settled government and the death of the cardinal who was possessed of abilities and vigour seemed much to weaken the hands of the administration but the queen dowager was a woman of uncommon talents and virtue and she did as much to support the government and supply the weakness of arran the governor as could be expected in her situation the protector of england as soon as the state was brought to some composure 
made preparations for war with Scotland, and he was determined to execute, if possible, that project of uniting the two kingdoms by marriage on which the late king had been so intent, and which he had recommended with his dying breath to his executors. He levied an army of eighteen thousand men, and equipped a fleet of sixty sail, one half of which were ships of war, the other laden with provisions and ammunition. He gave the command of the fleet to Lord Clinton. He himself marched at the head of the army, attended by the Earl of Warwick. These hostile measures were covered with a pretense of revenging some depredations committed by the borderers. But besides that, Somerset revived the ancient claim of the superiority of the English crown over that of Scotland. He refused to enter into negotiation on any other condition than the marriage of the young queen with Edward. The protector, before he opened the campaign, published a manifesto in which he enforced all the arguments for that measure. He said, that nature seemed originally to have intended this island for one empire, and having cut it off from all communication with foreign states, and guarded it by the ocean, she had pointed out to the inhabitants the road to happiness and to security, that the education and customs of the people concurred with nature, and by giving them the same language and laws and manners had invited them to a thorough union and coalition that fortune had at last removed all obstacles, and had prepared an expedient by which they might become one people, without leaving any place for that jealousy either of honour or of interest to which rival nations are naturally exposed. That the crown of Scotland had devolved on a female, that of England on a male, and happily the two sovereigns, as of a rank, were also of an age the most suitable to each other, that the hostile dispositions which prevailed between the nations, and which arose from past injuries, would soon be extinguished after a long and secure peace had established confidence between them, that the memory of former miseries, which at present inflamed their mutual animosity, would then serve only to make them cherish with more passion a state of happiness and tranquillity so long unknown to their ancestors, that when hostilities had ceased between the kingdoms, the Scottish nobility, who were at present obliged to remain perpetually in a warlike posture, would learn to cultivate the arts of peace, and would soften their minds to a love of domestic order and obedience that as this situation was desirable to both kingdoms, so particularly to Scotland, which had been exposed to the greatest miseries from intestine and foreign wars, and saw herself every moment in danger of losing her independency by the efforts of a richer and more powerful people, that though England had claims of superiority, she was willing to resign every pretension for the sake of future peace, and desired a union which would be the more secure as it would be concluded on terms entirely equal. And that, besides all these motives, positive engagements had been taken for completing this alliance, 
and the honor and good faith of the nation were pledged to fulfill what her interest and safety so loudly demanded. Somerset soon perceived that these remonstrances would have no influence, and that the Queen Dowager's attachment to France and to the Catholic religion would render ineffectual all negotiations for the intended marriage. He found himself, therefore, obliged to try the force of arms, and to constrain the Scots by necessity to submit to a measure for which they seemed to have entertained the most incurable aversion. He passed the borders at Berwick, and advanced towards Edinburgh, without meeting any resistance for some days, except from some small castles which he obliged to surrender at discretion. The protector intended to have punished the governor and garrison of one of these castles for their temerity in resisting such unequal force, but they eluded his anger by asking only a few hours' respite till they should prepare themselves for death, after which they found his ears more open to their applications for mercy. The governor of Scotland had summoned together the whole force of the kingdom, and his army, double in number to that of the English, had taken post on advantageous ground, guarded by the banks of the Eske, about four miles from Edinburgh. The English came within sight of them at Fosside, and after a skirmish between the horse, where the Scots were worsted, and Lord Hume dangerously wounded, Somerset prepared himself for a more decisive action but having taken a view of the Scottish camp with the Earl of Warwick, he found it difficult to make an attempt upon it with any probability of success. He wrote, therefore, another letter to Arran, and offered to evacuate the kingdom, as well as to repair all the damages which he had committed, provided the Scots would stipulate not to contract the queen to any foreign prince, but to detain her at home till she reached the age of choosing a husband for herself. So moderate a demand was rejected by the Scots merely on account of its moderation, and it made them imagine that the protector must either be reduced to great distress or be influenced by fear that he was now contented to abate so much of his former pretensions inflamed also by their priests, who had come to the camp in great numbers, they believed that the English were detestable heretics, abhorred of God, and exposed to divine vengeance, and that no success could ever crown their arms. They were confirmed in this fond conceit when they saw the protector change his ground and move towards the sea, nor did they any longer doubt that he intended to embark his army and make his escape on board the ships which at that very time moved into the bay opposite to him. Determined, therefore, to cut off his retreat, they quitted their camp, and passing the river Eska, advanced into the plain. They were divided into three bodies. Angus commanded the vanguard, Arran the main body, Huntley the rear. Their cavalry consisted only of light horse, which were placed on their left flank, strengthened by some Irish archers whom Argyle had brought over for this service. Somerset was much pleased when he saw this movement of the Scottish army, and as the English had usually been superior in pitched battles, he conceived great hopes of success. 
he ranged his van on the left, farthest from the sea, and ordered them to remain on the high grounds on which he placed them till the enemy should approach. He placed his main battle in his rear towards the right, and beyond the van he posted Lord Grey at the head of the men-at-arms, and ordered him to take the Scottish van in flank, but not till they should be engaged in close fight with the van of the English. While the Scots were advancing on the plain, they were galled with the artillery from the English ships. The eldest son of Lord Graham was killed. The Irish archers were thrown into disorder, and even the other troops began to stagger. When Lord Grey, perceiving their situation, neglected his orders, left his ground, and at the head of his heavy-armed horse made an attack on the Scottish infantry in hopes of gaining all the honour at the victory. On advancing he found a slough and ditch in his way, and behind were ranged the enemy armed with spears, and the field on which they stood was fallow ground, broken with ridges which lay across their front and disordered the movements of the English cavalry. From all these accidents the shock of this body of horse was feeble and irregular, and as they were received on the points of the Scottish spears, which were longer than the lances of the English horsemen, they were in a moment pierced, overthrown, and discomfited. Grey himself was dangerously wounded. Lord Edward Seymour, son of the Protector, had his horse killed under him. The standard was near being taken, and had the Scots possessed any good body of cavalry who could have pursued the advantage, the whole English army had been exposed to great danger. End of section 37, chapter 34, part 3. Recording by Rebecca Shertuti.